just as the musicians take their seats, it really is good to be with you. Thank you for your prayerful support. Literally, we wouldn't exist without you. And uh, literally, we cannot go on without your continued prayer, fellowship and support. So thank you. Let me pray and then we'll look at God's word more closely together. Father, we believe this to be your word. It doesn't have any errors in it. It's infallible. It's not partly true and partly untrue. It's complete truth. And so we pray, please, that by your spirit, you would make this ink upon a page, this characters on an electric screen, you'd make it live, and you'd help us to see wonderful truths in your word. Amen. It struck me this week when thinking about this passage again, that at Christmas time, people do an awful lot of singing. Songs are everywhere. Songs are there in church. There's lots of songs. There's lots of carols that we don't sing at any other time of year with wonderful truth included in them. Songs are especially there, normally about 10 songs, 10 songs in every shop you go into that they just repeat just to make that Christmas uh, stressful experience even more stressful and even more frustrating. Uh, Here are a few you can enjoy, and you can see my age by the pictures I chose. The Snowman, Ali Jones' big uh, bank rolling song from many a year ago, but it's still played there if you go into, I was going to say Woolworths. Wilco is a new Woolworths. So if you go into Wilco, it'll be played there, Class Olsen. Wherever you go, you'll hear the Snowman. You'll hear Slade. It's their one uh, kind of shop wonder, Slade, and their favourite take on Do You Know It's Christmas. You'd hear Cliff Richard. I'm not going to say anything against him because Viv Salter's here. You can hear the Pogues. You can hear Take That. You can hear a whole host of about 10 songs that just get played on repeat all through the Christmas season. There's a lot of music at this time of year in church life, in culture as a whole. But Mary raises the question for us in this passage, when you sing, how do you sing? When you hear these words, what do you think? When you think these thoughts, how do you process them? We can uh, listen to these words and we can be tempted to think very humanistically. For a few weeks a year, we can be convinced that inside ourselves is not the hero, that's to name another song, it's not a hero inside ourselves, but there is an inherent potential in the human spirit to do good. If we could just get along, if we could just surround ourselves with good things, then we would know what it means to be not a family in a localized sense, but we could be a family around the world. We could join together. That's especially clear at Christmas time. The Beatles told us so. And so this is Christmas for the weak and the strong, for the rich and the poor ones. The world is so wrong. And so happy Christmas for the black and the white, for the yellow and red ones. Let's stop all the fight. If you believe those words as you hum along, or listen on Absolute FM, or Classic FM, whatever it may be, if you believe those words, those words have the power to raise your expectations of what humanity could be like. We could get along, we could lay down our arms, we could unite, we could come together, we would be better together. And if you believe those words, and if you sing those lyrics, then humanity is altogether more powerful than actually it is. 
You'll feel warm and fuzzy. You'll feel convinced of better days ahead of you, at least for two weeks a year. But the words that Mary sings, the lyrics that we find in verses 46 and following, these words, they don't change it for two weeks. They don't change it just on the outside. These words, these words create a permanent revolution in her heart. She's changed from the inside out. She'll never be the same again as she meditates on the truth of the gospel. As she meditates and thinks on the character of God, it changes her. Not temporarily, but permanently. And friends, if you've not come in contact with the gospel before, and if you have, these words in this song, They can warm your heart afresh. They can change your heart for the first time. They can cause you to sing not about humanity, not sentimentally. These words can cause you to worship. They can cause you to adore. They can cause you to sing worshipfully. But how do we get to verse 46? We get there from a crisis point. We get there from a point of confusion, clarity, clarity, excuse the pun, is born, excuse me, don't groan, is born from confusion. What do I mean? Look at verse 35. It teaches us the importance of community. The importance of community. If you've got a Bible, look back at verse 35. Verse 35 shows us that the angel Gabriel, he came to Mary. You would have heard this explained last week if you were able to be here. And the angel Gabriel announces to Mary God's amazing salvation plan and how it will begin. Gabriel says, God is going to overshadow you. You're going to have a baby, Mary. You're going to give birth in the most miraculous way. And this baby is going to be extraordinary. He's going to be God's own son. God himself will take on human flesh. And of course, being fair to Mary, she doesn't know what's hit her. She doesn't understand. Now, we're not told if she's an introvert or an extrovert. We would quite understand if she went into a distant corner and just made herself a cup of first century tea and just took a bit of time to process this paradigm-busting, earth-shattering news that she's just heard from an angel. By the way, don't be afraid. But what does she do? Verse 39 tells us, Mary arose and she went. She hurried to her friend's house, to Elizabeth, because she wanted to understand what was going on. I mean, what's happening in her life? Look at verse 32 to verse 33. This baby, this baby's going to be an eternal king, says Gabriel. He's going to be from David's line. This baby, verse 35, God is going to cause a baby to be formed in your womb. He's not going to be of human origin. He's going to be of heavenly, of divine power and origin. And he's going to be formed carefully and nurtured in your womb. Now, of course, the penny doesn't drop to Mary. This is, this is outlandish. This has never happened before. This will never happen again. And Mary doesn't just leap into song that we read in verse 46. Something happens that teaches us the importance of living in community. She goes to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says, verse 45, Blessed is she, that's Mary, blessed is Mary, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. What does that mean? 
Elizabeth is saying this, Mary, the one who is to be born in your womb, he will be very God of very God. Mary, the one who's going to be born in your womb, he's not just going to be of David's family lineage, he's going to be holy. He's going to be every bit as divine as the Lord of the universe, and he's going to be born right in your womb. God is going to overshadow you. The baby that you're going to carry, Mary, he's going to be as much Lord as the Father of the heavens, and he's going to exist in your very womb. Elizabeth is helping Mary to understand the gospel of Christmas, the whole gospel. What's that? This claim that was described last week by Pastor Trevor so helpfully. What is being claimed here? Elizabeth says this, Mary, the one who is infinite, he's going to become finite. Mary, the one who is immortal, he's going to become mortal. Mary, the creator of the whole cosmos, he's going to become a single cell in your womb. Mary, the God who is invincible, he's going to become weak. The God who is great, he's going to become small. Mary, can you believe this, that the supernatural is going to become natural? Mary, do you believe this, that the impossible is going to become possible? Now, that's mind-boggling. This has never happened before. And Mary rightly is struggling to understand how can this be? God is going to give his son to the world. Not just a person, but a person who exhibits and who models and who is himself truth incarnate. And when Mary takes this truth in, it doesn't make her sentimental. It makes her a worshipper. It transforms her from the inside out. It gives her new life in her spirit. It makes her in so many ways the first Christian that there's ever been. And so verse 45, Elizabeth says, Mary, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has sent to her will be accomplished. And I'm sure Luke has recorded that sentence that's not just true for Mary, it's true for us. We will be blessed if we believe the promise that God has made and fulfilled as this baby becomes incarnate, that God takes on human flesh, the Holy One, who's becoming the lowly one. If you believe that truth, it can change you, says the gospel. Mary, do you believe everything that God has said he will do? As mind-boggling, as paradigm-shifting, as category-busting as that is, do you believe that that's really true? Mary, this is not something that's going to happen in Bible land. This is not fiction. This is going to happen in history. Mary, do you believe that? I know it sounds impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. If you believe that, you'll be blessed. Now, the problem with us in the modern world is that blessed is kind of a limp word. Blessed is something that you say when someone sneezes. Blessed is something that you can give someone a pat on the back. Oh, bless you. You tried your best. But if you look in the Hebrew Bible, if you look in the Greek part of the Bible as well, Blessed is a strong word. It's a word of transformation and power. It's a word that describes God working in a man or woman's heart or life, a boy or a girl's life, to make them everything that they should be. It makes you someone who is full to your human capacity before sin. That's a a blessed person. 
Someone who understands the law of God and has it written on their heart. That's a blessed person. It's someone who understands the gospel and gets transformed. It's a long process. It's a blessed person. Someone whom God works in their life to make them everything that they should be. And everything in Christ they can be. If you believe this gospel, this historical reality that God the Holy One became the lowly one. God the High and Mighty One became so small that he was born to rescue a sin-sick world. If you believe that truth, it can transform you. Not for two weeks. You don't believe in the power of human potential. You see your weakness and your need of a saviour and a rescuer and a redeemer. It's the power of the gospel. And it comes very practically only through the power of a local community. Friends, it's very easy in a big church, it's very easy in a small church to be on the outside. There's someone in our house that desperately needs a haircut. They have a big fringe. So pardon the illustration, but it's very easy to have a big fringe in a church such as Chessington or in a smaller church such as Emmanuel Epson. People who are on the outside looking in. Friends, do you know anything of the reality of true community? Do you have someone Guys, do you have another guy? Ladies, do you have another lady? Are you part of a life group in Chesington or in Epsom where the truth can be explained at a more personal level? Mary didn't have a clue what was going on. These amazing promises have been made to her, but she couldn't figure it out without the help of a godly older sister whose name was Elizabeth. There's a lovely story told by C.S. Lewis when a friend of his dies. And when Ronald dies, it wasn't just that we lost Ronald's laughter, but Ronald and the interaction we had with him, he brought out different parts of different people's characteristics and personalities that no other part of the friendship group could. Friends, there's been times in my life when things have been hard, when suffering has been real. And I've thought that God is not good, that he doesn't care. And the thing that has pulled me through is not myself. It's been a Christian friend who's corrected my thinking, who's come alongside me and prayed with me. It's the reality and the beauty and the power of true community. It's something that we long for if it's real and authentic, but it's so power if it's centered on the gospel. Friends, you cannot see all of God yourself. You need a friend. You need a friend who can see different parts of God's character who have walked a bit longer down the journey of faith than you have. Someone who can see something more of God's beauty and trustworthiness, his preciousness, his power, his glory. So that when you are tempted to believe the age-old lie of the serpent who says, does God really care? Is God really good? So you're not tempted to believe the lie. Friends, God is so often found in community. He is rarely found in an individual encounter with him. It's possible if you read the Bible. But rarely and far more often, God is found in community. Do you know anything of that? Non-Christian friend, it's wonderful that you're here. You're here with your doubts about whether Christianity is true. Can this Bible be trusted? Why don't you ask the friend who bought you? Why don't you come and ask me at the end of the service? Or daff. Don't stay on the fringe. Don't stay on the edges. Come in and enjoy and experience the blessing of community. Mary did not work it out by herself. But when the penny dropped, 
When God acted in Elizabeth's life and she spoke truth into Mary's life, Mary started to sing. It's in verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit, that's a parallel, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is not academic truth that she just understands data. Mary is starting to sing worshipfully because the penny's dropping. Truth is gripping her heart. What does she sing about? She sings, point number two, about God's nature. She sings about God's nature. Look at verses 49 to 51. Mary sings and praises God because she now understands God is the mighty one. God is the mighty one. The mighty one has done great things for me. The word here in verse 51, it's it's the picture, it's the image of a mighty warrior going out into battle. It's a divine warrior defeating his foes. But although the image is one of warfare, the battlefield is not mud and a sod and earth and water. The battlefield is for the human heart. That's the, the conquest, that's the victory that the divine warrior loves to win. You can see that from verse 51, she praises the strength of his arm. It's a, it's a military term that explains his power and his might and his authority. But where is that seen? What human hearts have experienced the might and power of God? Verse 51, he scatters the proud. Those people who trust in their own resources. Those people who think God is not good and they'd rather live their life not under his loving rule but under their own. God scatters the proud. That happens in Babel, Genesis chapter 11, for example. But God also humbles kings, verse 52. Did you notice that? Those kings like Nebuchadnezzar, kings who rely on their own strength. God will scatter the proud and humble kings. Verse 53, God the mighty one will also exalt the lowly. All through Luke's gospel, we've just spent a year in Luke's gospel. So this could be a really, really long sermon, if I'm not very careful. All through Luke's gospel, you see again and again God's concern for all people, but especially the lowly, especially the poor, the spiritually poor, and the financially poor. You see it in people like Mary, who's so poor when we get to chapter 2, and they go up to the temple to present an offering for their new son, Jesus. All she can afford is the the temple taxation of the lowest of the low. Two turtle doves. Two little pigeons that she takes up. But God is also concerned for the outcast, those who are lowly in spirit, who see their need. Someone like Zacchaeus in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel. Mary sees and praises God because he is the mighty one. She also sees, verse 49, he's the holy one. He's the mighty one, but he's also the holy one. There is a story on the radio this week. I had the radio on as I was working at the computer. The story was so shocking, I won't recount it to you, but it just drifted into my ears. It was graphic. It was horrible. But it trickled into my ear. I should have turned the radio station off straight away, but I didn't. I can remember it, but I don't want to recount it to you. Friends, isn't it so easy in the world in which we live where news is so immediate, it's so urgent, demanding our attention, that it can be beamed to us from around the whole of God's world. We can just get anesthetized to horrendous actions. We can get anesthetized to horrendous acts, to evil. 
God is never anesthetized to evil. God's character, his nature that Mary is praising, his might but also his holiness, it has an acidic and allergic reaction towards sin. This baby who will be born into the world will be opposed to sin. He'll never get used to it. He'll never say that good is evil or evil is good. Jesus is the mighty one. Jesus is the holy one who has an acidic reaction to sin. He cannot stand it. He won't get near it. He has power to redeem it and eradicate it from the world through his death. And Mary somehow gets some of this. Although Gabriel didn't say it when he came, from verse 35 and following, Gabriel didn't mention the cross, but he said enough, I think, to say that he is coming to deal with the sin and the sickness and the evil and the pride and the poverty in the world. If we grew up in a Protestant tradition in the free church, in the Baptists or the Methodists, we need to see here that Mary is revered. She's blessed. She's to be honoured. However, verse 47 tells us as Mary sings, my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. She is to be revered. She is to be honoured. But friends, if we were brought up in a Catholic tradition, we need to pay attention to that sentence, verse 47. Mary understands that she is not sinless. She, like each one of us, needs a saviour, verse 47 says. She's not perfect. Perfect people don't need a saviour. They don't need a rescuer. But Mary understands something of the fact that this baby who is to be born will be a saviour, not just for her life, And not just pay for her sins, but for the sins of the whole world. She sees something of that, although dearly. So God is the mighty one. Secondly, God is the holy one. Thirdly, God is the merciful one. What do I mean by that? This song, these lyrics tell us that God, who is transcendent over all things, he's going to become imminent and close and personal. He is not far off. He is not capricious. He is not hard-hearted. He is a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. God looks down. He sees our misery and our suffering. And he wants to do something about it. He has power to do something about it. I want you to imagine a scene. Some of us, we need to imagine it. Some people just need to remember it. When was the last time you had an argument with somebody you loved? I closed my eyes in case it was this morning and there's a nudge to the person next to you, perhaps as you got some kids into the car and the temperature rose a little bit. But uh, some of you need to remember the last time you had a disagreement at work with somebody you appreciated. Somebody can just uh, imagine the last time you... I, I need to imagine it because we never argue in our house. So I just imagine with you that uh, you sometimes have an argument or a, uh, we call it a disagreement, um, a disagreement with someone you love. Just imagine... You have a conversation that goes something like this. You're to blame. I can't find my keys. Where are they? Well, you're to blame. No, if you put them in the same place, you'd know where they were. No, you're to blame because you must have moved them. And the conversation goes on back and forth, shifting blame from one person to to the other. That will keep going like a tennis match until somebody stops and somebody says, but as soon as somebody concedes... Even if you're 20% right and 80% wrong, the only way that tit-for-tat tennis conversation stops is when somebody concedes. 
somebody takes the initiative to say this relationship is more important than this argument. I want a relationship with you and I'm going to take the initiative and I'm going to make myself vulnerable. Even if I'm a little bit right and you're mostly wrong, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to concede. I'm going to take the hurt. I'm going to take the pain. Now, why would you do that? Why would you risk losing face, whether it's at work or in the home? Because the heat's rising and it's hard to stop and to lose face. The only reason I stop arguing, the only reason I stop throwing muck, is not because I don't like arguments. It's because I want the other person back. I want the other person back. And that style of relating in a conversation and in an argument or a debate or a disagreement, that only works because it's a shadow of God's mercy on us who takes the initiative, who shows his mercy because he wants us back. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas tells you something that no other religion claims. It claims something that Islam and Judaism says is impossible. It claims something that Eastern religions say is impossible as well, that God became a baby. No other religion claims that. No other religion says that's possible or even true. But Christmas proves that God wanted us back. And to do that, God had to become vulnerable. He had to become breakable. He had to be willing to be hurt. It's the shadow of Easter that we see in the cradle at Christmas. Think about this. The God to whom the whole universe was a speck, he became a speck to win us back, to rescue us, to pay the price, to redeem us. Friends, when you see that, as Mary began to see, and that's why she sung, my saviour is going to be born and I'm going to carry him. It's remarkable because of my guilt, because of my shame, because of my failure, because of my rebellion against my father in heaven. When you see that, it makes you into a worshipper. You see humanity, you see your own heart as it truly is. We all need rescuing. And we see God who is the mighty one and God who is the holy one and God through Jesus who is the merciful one. What is God like? God is so holy that he must do something. We can't rescue ourselves. God is so merciful that he wants to do something. He's not with his arms folded in heaven. But God is so powerful, friends, that he can do something. That's the gospel. And he does it as his son comes from heaven to earth, from the throne room of heaven to the confines of a virgin's womb. It's the God who is mighty and holy and merciful. And that's what makes Mary sing about his nature. Thirdly, Mary sings about God's nature. He also sings about God's promises. He sings about God's promises. If you're a parent here, there is a time, so I'm told, we're just getting to that stage of life when you don't see your children as much, whether they're at school or they uh, start to take some initiative and they start to go out and get jobs and whatnot. You don't see them around so much. Some of you, you just long for that day. Some of you long that you could get back to when they were at home. But whether they're under your feet, tugging at your skirt, or whether they're, that's the girls, not the guys, um, whether they're kind of, sort of pulling at your trousers... They may not be in your proximity, but you are always, always mindful of your children. 
You might not be able to see them, but they're there in your subconscious. And someone said, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. You're mindful of them. That word, mindful, is very important to understand the mercy of God, who is the mighty one, the holy one, but he's the merciful one. And so Mary sings about God's purposes, verse 47 and verse 48. She's marveling. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Verse 48. For he has looked on my lowliness. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant, you may have in your Bible. God is mindful of Mary, who is so lowly, who's so poor. She's a nobody. Financially, she's got no resources to give her social standing. She doesn't have a position in society that you'd think anything of her. She's so lowly. God could have chosen a queen. And the queen would carry his son. Because she would have all that she would need. She would be cared for well. But God chooses the lowly and the humble and the needy to be involved in his purposes. And so Mary is rejoicing and meditating on God's mindfulness. What does that mean? It means God's deep, present, personal concern for his children. God has the advantages that he can see all things. We can't see where our children are. If we're parents or if we're grandparents, we can't see where they are all the time. Sometimes I wish I could. But God is mindful of Mary. And a very similar word ends the song in verse 54 to 55. God is singing not about God's nature now, but about his purposes. God is mindful of Mary, verse 47 to 48. But at the end of her song, verses 54 to 55, Mary is now singing about God's remembrance. Very similar word about something that's happened in history. When God has remembered his covenant promises to his people. Now we need to be careful here. But I think this is how it goes. God is mindful of lowly Mary only because he's mindful of his people as a whole. Mary is not the center of his affections. That's his son. But Mary is uh, part of God's covenant purposes and plans, part of God's covenant people. And so Mary can say, verses 47 and 48, he has done great things for me. Why? Because she is consumed of the fact of God's nature and his purposes for all people. She's not elevating herself up here. She needs a saviour. She's not perfect. She's needy and sin-stained, just like me and you. But she's praising God for his covenant purposes. Look at uh, what she's saying. What has happened inside of me? The fact that I'm going to carry the saviour of the world. What's happening in here? She's singing about the fact that God is doing something in me, verse 55... And in that activity, he's keeping the covenant promises that he made to Abraham, verse 55. And just think for a minute when Mary is singing this song. I mean, hasn't God forgotten? Any rational person would say that God's forgotten. These promises made to Abraham are 2,000 years out of date. God has not spoken a word to his people for 400 years. That's a clear piece of paper between Old and New Testament. That's a 400-year break before God spoke through the uh, angel Gabriel. Malachi is 400 years out of date. Hasn't God broken his promises? Hasn't he forgotten his purposes? Here is God's covenant people downtrodden by the Romans. They've got 
no sovereignty by themselves. They've lost their land. They're being heavily taxed. God must have forgotten us. That would be very easy for a rational person to think. But Mary, in verse 55, says something remarkable. It might even be the most interesting phrase of the whole song. And it's two words, even as. Mary says, verse 55, all this has happened even as he promised. Even as, what's happening to me is happening even as God promised to Abraham. Although it's 2,000 years old, although there's been 400 years of silence, God has not forgotten his promises. And friends, God never does. God is a promise-making, covenant-keeping God. Do you remember what happened in Genesis 15 when God says to Moses, get outside your tent, look up the stars in the sky, look at the sand on the seashore, so shall your descendants be. You're going to have that many children, and through you the world will be blessed. Abraham, you're going to be the father of kings, and a really special king as well. And that promise is 2,000 years old. And in Mary's womb, that promise is coming true. A king is coming. But you and I might say, God, you must have forgotten me. You might feel that in your own personal experience even this week. I've prayed and prayed and prayed. And I feel that heaven is shut and that you've deserted me. Friends, don't believe the lie that if God is slow in keeping his promise, or even if God is saying no at this moment, God is a promise-making and he's always a promise-keeping God who is good. Don't be tempted to think that God has forgotten us. First century Jews would have been tempted to think that. None of these things will ever come true. It's easy to think that. But Christmas bursts that bubble. At Christmas, it proves to us that God never forgets He can't be fitted into our time frames and in our planners on our phones. It may take a long time. It's 2,000 years. But God always keeps his promises. It may be a long time in our reckoning. But verse 55 says, even as God is keeping his promises. He's, He's mindful of Mary and he's mindful of every one of his children. He's mindful of you. He's mindful of you. He will always do what he says. He said he would intervene in history. And he has done it 2,000 years ago as he sent his son into the world. He said he will put down rebellion. He started that by dying on the cross. And that will come into fulfillment and fruition when Jesus Christ comes for the second time. He said he would send his son and he did. He said he will come back and he will. Whatever God says he will do, he does. Friends, one of the signs that if you've become a Christian, even this morning, even if it was 30 years old, 30 years ago, is that you stop becoming someone who just sings sentimental songs at Christmas. You sing carols because you love the God of the carols. You sing the truth of the carols because that truth is broken into your heart. You sing worshipfully. You sing from the heart. This is not a sweet set of bedtime stories. This is true. This is historically true. This actually happened. And that makes you want to sing like Mary did. You praise God for his character. You praise God for his purposes. That you've been caught up in his purpose and his plan. 
You say something like, to what lengths you've come to help me deal with my own sin, to deal with my own guilt, to deal with my own flaws. You move. Christmas makes us move from singing sentimentally to singing worshipfully. Do you know something of that? As we gather around the Lord's table, as we sing shortly, this words that just trip through one ear and out the other, they come off your tongue, or are you singing as a worshipper? How are you singing, sentimentally, or are you singing worshipfully? Friends, Mary has taught us how to sing. She's taught us about the importance of community, but she's taught us how to sing when we sing, when we live. Do we live and sing as worshippers? Do we sing about God's character, his attributes? Do we enjoy his holiness and know something of his majesty? Because when you strip it all back, Christmas is about this one sentence. Friends, at Christmas, God's only child became human. So we as humans might become God's children. He might adopt us, redeem us, rescue us. As we come around the table now, do you know that truth? If you do, this table is for you. God's only son became human. So that we as humans might become God's children. It's the gospel in a nutshell. It's Christmas in a nutshell. Friends, if you sing worshipfully, if you worship God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not as you long to, but to the best of your spirit-enabled ability, this table is for you to remind us of God's covenant promises made with the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the elders to join me now. We're going to celebrate Jesus' death, which we see actually at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke.